Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Joe Lynch, and today's topic is less than truckload then and now with David Ross. How's it going there, David? It's going great, Joe. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. So please introduce yourself and your company. Yeah, so I'm Dave Ross. I work at Roadrunner Freight, executive vice president over there. We are a major metro to major metro LTL carrier, and you know, happy to handle any freight that needs to be handled right now in this crazy, crazy freight market. So when you say metro, major metro to major metro, how many major metros are there in your book? For us, it's just over 30. So call it 32, 33. So professional sports cities. (laughs) More or less. I mean, if you want to go from LA to Chicago or LA to Dallas or Seattle to Atlanta, we're very good at that. If you want to go from Providence to Boston or from Baltimore to Philly, we're not your carrier. There's a lot of good LTL carriers to do that for you. Right. So I'm in Detroit and we technically have four major sports teams, but I don't know. Are they considered professional outside of Detroit now? <laughs> the Lions, the Red Wings, the Tigers. Pistons and Tigers. Yeah. <laughs> it's not been our been, not been our year. Or yep. maybe it's longer than that. <laughs> for the Lions, it's been the fifties. So anyway, we're very lucky to have David today because he has been there, done that, got the hat. He is got the history of LTL. And I know less than truckload pretty well because I worked in it, but I never really understood the history. And then when I was talking to David when we were prepping, he really understands this history. So that's why we decided to do this podcast on then and now. So David, give us a little bit of history. And I think what, oh, before we get into that, one other thing I want to talk to you about is I've always, it comes up on my podcast a lot that, you know, the business leaders, we need to get more and more involved with our communities that we serve, not just moving their freight. Of course, we do that. But you're involved with a whole bunch of charities. Could you talk for a minute about all those? Sure. And I have a lot of friends who are involved in a lot of other great charities, too. But I am officially involved. None better than yours, though. <laughs> I'm officially involved in several at the moment. First is the Carson Scholars Fund that was started by Dr. Ben and his wife, Candy Carson, over 20 years ago. And we build reading rooms across the country in schools just to encourage literacy and kids to read no matter what they're interested in. The idea is to get them reading so that they develop that skill because if they can read, they can learn whatever they want. And then we also award scholarships to students, college scholarships for those that not only demonstrate you have good academics, but humanitarian qualities. They have to be a good person. They have to be given back to their community. They can't just be in the books all the time. So that's been a fantastic organization that I've been involved with. Also, on the art side here in Miami, there's an artist residency called The Fountainhead, where we host three artists from around the world every month. And they come in and nice. they kind of get a break from their daily grind, normal studio, normal routine, and they can experiment, and try new things. And we have an open house once a month, too, where collectors and friends and others can just come in and meet the artists and see what they're working on. So it's it's really, really cool, cool What experience. if they want to go to Miami for a month? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of other artist residencies in different parts of the country, too, that they can go to or even different parts of the world. I don't think that's a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a hard sell, and it's a, it's a, a lot of good artists. So uh, I'm very fortunate to be involved with them and, and to meet really the, the cool, creative people that 
you've gotten connections with over the years. And then just locally here in Miami as well, the Humane Society. That's where I got my dog. So I'm involved on the board there. And then lastly is more international because I do think that we're all global citizens in a way. And I've gotten involved with the Charlize Theron Africa Outreach Project. And there we work with program partners over in South Africa, mainly on the, the youth side, women's health side, to provide continued growth and quality opportunities for the young people over there. What I really like about the organization too is it doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. What we do is we identify people on the ground in South Africa and other parts of Southern and Central Africa increasingly that are doing good work already. We just try to magnify their impact and maybe give them resources and things that they don't have so that they can have a bigger impact there. So all that is using a different part of the brain, different skill set. You know, Using be your heart too. <laughs> uh, than trucking, but it's all connected. It's all related, and I'm very happy to be involved and in working with those great people. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So, before we get into the meat of the matter today, so to give us a little background about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you got to Roadrunner. Sure. Born in North Carolina, but I grew up in Maryland, about 45 minutes north of Baltimore City. Went to Georgetown undergrad in Washington, nice. D.C. And then after that, I went to Alex Brown on the investment banking side with a focus on transportation and logistics. So that's really you know, what got me in because people always say, how do you get involved in transportation? How do you get into trucking? Did you always want to do trucking? Well, I was a finance major in college and I went into investment banking and Alex right. Brown just happened to have a very strong transportation niche. Alex Brown was the old investment bank in the U.S., founded in 1800. They took the railroads public in the 1800s. <laughs> and uh, we also took most of the trucking industry public after 1980 you know, with Bill Legg and John Larkin and, and others really leading the way there on the banking and analyst side. So I was at Alex Brown for a little bit, or Deutsche Bank Alex Brown, as it was, it was called at the time, and briefly went to work for a client of ours and then ended up back at Lake Mason with John Larkin, who was the analyst that took most of those trucking companies public in the 80s and 90s. And he essentially was my mentor through my career on the research side. And he and I started the group at Lake Mason about 20 years ago with eight stocks under coverage. We grew that to over 90 stocks under coverage with five senior analysts on the team. And So are those all like trucking companies, those 90? No, they were all transportation companies concentrated on the freight side. My background's always been on the freight side, but we have an airline analyst as well, Joe Denardi, who does the you know, Deltas, United, Southwest of the world. And so we really got yeah, everything from the marine side to the air side, and then all modes and domestic and global transportation, including 3PLs. I covered European companies like DSV and Panalpina before they got bought by DSV and Kuhnernagel and Deutsche Post DHL. And so, so you got the global, I mean, literally the global, but also all modes of transportation. Yeah, and supply chains are global, so that's one of the reasons I took the practice in that direction. A lot of the other banks at the time, they had a European analyst that covered those European names, and they had a U.S. analyst who right. covered the U.S. names. And But UPS and FedEx don't only compete with U.S. companies. They compete very much with DHL, and C.H. Robinson doesn't only compete with U.S. companies. Right. They, they also compete with international companies like a Kuhnernagel on the forwarding side. So really... You know, being at Stiefel was great because it afforded me to do all of that from one seat and have kind of the global perspective, again, because supply chains are global and competition is global. Right. And so when and why did you decide to jump over to Roadrunner? Well, it was very recent, Joe. Two months ago is when I made the shift. I had a 20 plus career on Wall Street and I felt that it had been a great run. I met a lot of really, really interesting and smart and cool people. 
enjoyed the industry that I was in the whole time. You know, even from out, you know, investment banking onto the research side, I was always involved in transportation and logistics and felt very lucky to be in that space because there's just so many, you know, just great stories of people starting with one truck in the 70s or 80s and building it up to hundreds of millions of dollars of business. And, and so, so I had a lot of mentors in that regard too on the industry side and, you know, felt that it was time for a change. And what I enjoyed about the research job was really digging into strategy and digging into industry. I did a lot of ride-alongs with truck drivers over the years. I really tried to see what separated somebody like an old Dominion, you know, from say a Conway or a Sayo or a Yellow or another competitor. And the analogy I've used with people is it's like coming out of the announcer's booth and onto the field. <laughs> and so, so that's what I did a couple months ago. The, the opportunity came to me, Roadrunners, a company I've been familiar with for a long time. I was involved in their IPO back in 2010. Stiefel was on the cover. I had public disagreements with prior management over strategy and, you know, watched Roadrunner go from a fairly right. focused, <laughs> yeah, fairly focused quality company into losing its way for a while as they decided to buy a bunch of stuff that didn't make any sense and tech on debt to do it. And then there was a whole host of other issues that resulted in getting delisted and kind of going underground for a while. But they made a lot of changes in the last couple of years behind the scenes, cutting out a lot of that unrelated, unnecessary distraction in terms of other businesses. It really just got back to Roadrunner Freight. Roadrunner Freight is an LTL carrier. It is not a warehousing company. It is not an air freight company. It does not do all of those other things. And really what we're, we're going back to our roots is our president, Frank Hurst, likes to say, high quality, reliable service, major metro to major metro. We don't do everything, but what we do, we do it well. And with some new investment that came in as, as well from you know, Andrew Leto and others, we really have the balance sheet now to make some of the tough changes and invest in our future that they didn't have a year or so ago when they were going through a lot of those problems. So the timing seemed to work out really well. It's very good LTL market today. I think Roadrunner has a valuable asset and it's just on us to run it better. That's my goal. Well, you know, one of the things I like, and you said this well, a number of times we were prepping, you said just now that we have some things we're really good at. That's what we focus on. And we won't, we're not everything to everybody. Major Metro to Major Metro. If you got a pro sports team, we probably go there. What's interesting about that is I remember when I was doing less than truckload, it wasn't always apparent to even me selling into the services, but certainly not to our customers that every less than truckload carrier wasn't good at the same stuff. So they said, well, hey, USF Holland does that in one day. Well, that's great because it's in their backyard. That's their strong suit. They don't play over here, though. And I always remember that conversation, not really understanding it for a few years until it became apparent. <laughs> like, hey, these guys are really good at some places and don't want to play in others. And so stick to their knitting. So give us a little bit of history. When we were talking, when we were prepping for this, you had some interesting history to share. So I don't know how far back you want to go with the <laughs> with the history, but give us a little bit of background. And you talked, one of the things I thought was interesting is you said, since the 80s, it's been consolidating. So then the history since the 80s, maybe that's yeah, a good place to start. I'll start by backing up a little bit for any of the listeners who don't really know exactly what LTL is or less than truckload oh, that's is, good. because I think most of your audience probably does on the supply chain side of things. But in case somebody doesn't, the way I describe it to people, it sits in between parcel and truckload. So if you're shipping a box or you're ordering something on Amazon, a couple books, it comes in a little brown box with a barcode on it. That's a parcel shipment that goes UPS and FedEx. Right. They run it through their hub and spoke network with highly automated conveyorized sort systems, and they ship it to you very efficiently. If you are somebody like a Walmart or a Target that has a ton of volume, those 18 wheelers you see driving down the road, but the 53 foot trailer, one customer can fill that and ship from A to B, which is a very efficient way for them to do it on the big box side. For all of those other shippers that 
have more to ship than a box, but don't want to take up a whole trailer. So call it a palletized shipment that weighs 300 to 1,000 pounds, sometimes up to 5,000 or 10,000 pounds. That goes LTL. And LTL, because it's heavier shipments and larger shipments, you don't have the automation that you do at a FedEx or UPS hub. It doesn't go on a conveyorized sort because it's big and bulky. They still have a similar hub and spoke system to FedEx and UPS. So LTL networks are much more like FedEx and UPS, and people understand generally what they do, and not like truckload because of the the sort. But the sort is more of a low-tech cross-dock forklift operation than any you know, highly automated right. you know, conveyorized sort involving technology. So that's just a snapshot of the LTL industry. It's a 42 to $45 billion industry right now, which is about, you know, say, a tenth of the size of the truckload market. So it's a niche within the transportation space, but it's growing, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But back to the history. If I could add one other thing to this, when we talk about so I'll put a link to, uh, I've done some LTL basics. I did that with Doug Sartain, who's over at, oh, I forget the name of the company now. <laughs> I'll think about it after I hang up here. But I always say, if I have five pallets and they have to go from Detroit to L.A., I don't want to buy a whole truck. I also can't go over to UPS and say, hey, can you ship these five pallets? Or the standard UPS store, maybe the UPS rate would. But what I can do is find one of these less than truckload carriers to say, hey, we'll put your stuff with a whole bunch of other people's stuff going to L.A. And it's the most cost effective way for me. I don't want a whole truck. I don't want to spend four grand or five grand <laughs> for my own truck. I lose money on my deal now. So it's a fantastic way. And I always wonder how that evolved. It must have evolved a long time ago just with a whole bunch of people, just with that same predicament. <laughs> well, it really started back. I mean, you look at a Cyan, YRC or, or Yellow Roadway, they all started in the 1920s. And... The U.S. economy was spread out. There were no big box stores. (laughs) Nobody had these large 53-foot trailers at the time. And so it was always this consolidation game and and shipping things and trying to put them together was what a lot of the trucking companies did. And and so if if, if you go to fast forward to deregulation in 1980, there's a couple of stats. At the time of deregulation, 55 out of the top 60 LTL carriers in the U.S. were union. Three of them are left or three carriers essentially remain in the top 60. And ironically, one of them was one of the only non-union companies at the time. And that's overnight, which got bought by UPS Freight and organized and then recently got bought by TFI and rebranded T-Force Freight. So there's been a a heavy shift over the last 40 plus years from a unionized industry to a non-union industry. And the reason for that is because of the operating leverage inherent in an LTL network. You're running a system every day where you have a certain number of fixed costs. You're paying the driver on the P&D side. You have the equipment. You have dock workers. You've got your real estate infrastructure. and You've got your line haul runs. And so there's a fixed number that it costs somebody to just turn the lights on every day and, and run that network. Whether they've got one pallet on the truck or 20, they've got to deliver that shipment because that's what they do. You know, if a customer wants it delivered, right. they, they have to go out and make the delivery. And so it's a density game. And what the union carriers really got caught off guard by was the inflexibility of their contracts, not just on the pay and benefit side, but also around the work rules, which required them to have more labor than a non-union competitor could have. And so you get into the 1980s and you know, carriers like Conway popped up and we're doing really well on American Freightways and all these other companies, the economy goes through cycles and the freight market goes through cycles. So when there's plenty of freight for everybody, it's not a big deal. But when you go into a freight recession, 
when the economy goes into recession and volumes fall, well, that exposes those with the highest cost structure and really puts the most pressure on them. You know, as, as Warren Buffett likes to say, it's you don't really see who's swimming with no trunks until the you know the tide comes. <laughs> until the tide goes out. Yeah, the tide goes out, and so. It's a, you, That's look, also when all the Ponzi schemes are exposed. <laughs> correct. So when you look at the LTL industry and you had all these carriers in a you know, competitive industry because it was a lot more fragmented back then than it was today, which, which we'll get to, those carriers that had the highest cost structure couldn't survive those downturns. So they ultimately shut down. And it's not a business that goes through a Chapter 11 and comes out the other side. Once you get into that downward spiral, it's very, very hard to get out of it. And so usually it's just Chapter 7, not Chapter 11 for the LTL carriers. The biggest bankruptcy really in the last 20 years was Consolidated Freightways that went under Labor Day weekend of 2002. And it was somewhat of a shock to the system in terms of it wasn't widely anticipated. And yes, they were having financial problems, but all of a sudden they just decided not to operate uh, one day and had freight stranded all over the country. But that presented an opportunity for the remaining carriers to pick up market share, to increase price and expand their capacity. Right. And then you know, through the next upcycle, they all grow until you have another downturn. Yeah, and then there's further consolidation. And the consolidation that really happened back in the big one back in 2009, 2010 was yellow and roadway. So and I'll back up a, a second to get there because there's other trends that have gone on in the LTO market. One is, and this is more of just a freight profile shift in the U.S. economy, but you went from long haul to regional freight. That's been a long-term trend in the industry is supply chains get more dispersed and you have more regional distribution than you have long haul distribution. So you still have long haul distribution, but it's not the growth area that regional LTL has been. And so post-deregulation, there's really kind of the four horsemen of long-haul LTL, and they were all unionized. These were carriers that had grown up through the regulated era to have national footprints of 300 to 400 terminals everywhere, really built around the U.S. manufacturing economy back in, say, the 50s and 60s, where everything was made in the U.S. This is when China was still close to the world. And so you had all of the raw materials, all of the work in progress, everything that led to Detroit and, and the auto industry, all of that was you know, kind of done here. And you fast forward to today, and a lot of that happens overseas. Right. And then it just comes here in an ocean container, and it's a finished good distribution model for a lot of the U.S. supply chains now. So it's that kind of put these guys in a disadvantaged position because the reason that they were in all these little locations is because there used to be you know, small right. suppliers, manufacturers there that just weren't there anymore. And so you had Consolidated Freightways, Roadway, Arkansas Best, or ABF Freight System, and Yellow were the, the four horsemen there. And Consolidated Freightways was the first one to go under in 2002. Roadway and Yellow got together in 2003 with Yellow buying Roadway, which really left two large national unionized LTLs. You know, one ABF, which was always the more profitable one, and then Yellow Roadway, which rebranded itself Yellow Roadway Corp, and then YRC Corp, and is now back to Yellow. I saw and, that. And, 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 and so... Because some people will say, well, there wasn't any big consolidation in the LTL industry in 2009, 2010. And I say that's complete BS because Yellow and Roadway got together. And then in 2009, 2010, they lost 50% of their volume. So essentially, one of them went away. You pick which one. <laughs> say Roadway went out of business. I mean, that volume got spread out among all of the competitors. And it's just been you know, a continuing consolidating industry to the point where now we're at the point where either the carriers are too smart and they're too disciplined and they're good operators, like somebody, you know, say, in Old Dominion, where 
they're very rational on pricing through the cycle. Or you have others like Yellow, they're not in the position to be cutting rates or trying to be aggressive on pricing and, and gain share. So really, we have a very disciplined pricing market in the LTL industry as the top five players represent just under 60% of the market. So it's much more consolidated than truckload, where the top 10 guys have about 10% of the market, but it's not nearly to the degree of the railroads or UPS and FedEx that are essentially oligopolies or duopolies. I haven't looked lately, but I think, and I, don't quote me on this, I, th- I trust Dave's, the top five have 60% market share, 60% of the volume. But I remember looking at that list of the top 25 LTL companies, and I th- seem to remember the top 10 had 80% of the volume, and I think the top 25 had like 90% of the volume. So and to your point, if you looked at the top 25 truckload carriers, they would have probably far less than 25% of the market. Correct. And so, yeah, it's, it's, so when it comes to LTL, you have to have that density. and You got to be able to say, I have enough to open a terminal somewhere, right? Well, there really hasn't been any LTL carrier of significance started up probably since 1990. Is that crazy? So why is that? It's because of the... A few reasons, but largely due to the upfront investment needed and the operating leverage of the business, the cyclicality of the business. Most of the money people that have wanted to start up in transportation has gone on the non-asset-based side because it doesn't take a lot of money to get into it. The return on capital is higher. The free cash flow is generally better. You don't have to worry about unions or organization potential. And so LTL has not been an attractive place where people want to throw a lot of money and compete with some very good carriers that are already running quality LTL operations. Right. And have yeah. density. Yeah, exactly. And I heard this today. My friend Steve Elwell told me that the steel shortage, that we're just coming out of COVID, hopefully. <laughs> we're in uh, May 2021. And he said that because there's such a steel shortage and coming out of COVID that people are scrapping some large boats that might have been repaired or continue working, ships that move freight. And he says, so that's that's making our logistics that much harder right now. And I was like, that's hard to believe, but I guess it's a razor thin business. And they say, hey, look, I got this freight. I got this boat. I'm going to scrap it and get this much money for it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, it's all about supply and demand, Joe. And the interesting thing about the ocean side, uh, I know this is mainly an LTL call, but I'll touch on it, is it's a market that looks more like the LTL market from a consolidation standpoint, right. but it's operated like a truckload market in terms of really a lack of pricing power and a lack of discipline. It seems like it's highly fragmented, but it's not. And that's why until this past year, the ocean carriers for the past decade have lost billions. There's only been a couple that have really been profitable. It's been amazing to watch. So now that you've got a shortage of capacity or or an increase in demand or or both really that tighten it up, ocean rates are are only going one way. Right, right. So We've talked about this, as you said, it's five carriers. Can you say who those five carriers are who have that 60% of the market? Well, you've got FedEx Freight, which is by far the biggest, the one that has been growing the fastest. And, and you know, I keep forgetting exactly where they fall because one year they're five, next year they're four, then they're three. But Old Dominion is, is up there near the top. XPO, which is the old Conway, Estes is up there. UPS Freight, now T-Force Freight is up there. So there's and, and yeah, there's some strong carriers. T-Force is the old uh, what? UPS Freight. So UPS Freight, and that got bought by that Canadian company, right? TFI, which is based in Canada, but they operate heavily in the U.S. They also bought CFI from XPO a number of years ago and have really restored that company to become a good operator on the truckload side. So even before the UPS Freight acquisition, TFI was about 50% U.S. revenue and 50% Canada. So did they, did UPS, I think I read this, that UPS, 
the LTL operations lost money, and it, but it was kind of a lost leader for the UPS small parcel business. Is that true? Roughly. It wasn't the focus of the company. Uh, it right. didn't make a lot of sense. To me, it was a Me Too acquisition at the time where FedEx was having remarkable success with Viking American Freightways. They rebranded to FedEx Freight. They were profitable. They were large. They were growing fast. And so UPS said, oh, well, I think we need to have an LTL carrier too because it seems to be working out so well for FedEx. So they bought overnight and you know, never really spent a lot of time or money making it a big deal. I mean, the other thing is, as part of the FedEx portfolio, FedEx Freight was more significant. It's changed in recent years with different acquisitions they've done, but you know, it used to be, say, 15 16% of the business, whereas at UPS, LTL was never more than 2% of the business. And so whether they operated at an 85 OR or 105 OR, you really didn't notice it. At UPS, the driver of the stock price has always been the small pack side, really domestic, U.S. domestic small package, even though international has been crushing it over the past year. That's another podcast that I want to do. I want to do something I want to talk about. I mean, we have UPS, we have FedEx, and I guess you could say we have Amazon and then we have all those little regional guys. But I keep thinking to myself, boy, if there's one place to get into is be that small parcel right now, but maybe that's got its own challenges. <laughs> well, it's it's similar to the question you asked earlier about why there hasn't been a lot of LTL carrier startup. There hasn't been a lot of parcel carriers startup or grow to a certain scale because you're competing against a couple behemoths in UPS and FedEx that have a ton of density. And so what you have to do to really compete with them is be able to grow and scale and invest a lot of money that your shareholders may not want to see you know, getting poured down the drain. The, the reason that UPS is so successful in Europe is that they had a, a cash cow in their U.S. parcel segment forever. You know, back until the Teamster strike in 1997, UPS was over 90% of the U.S. ground parcel market, and they were a private company until 1999. They started in Europe around 1980, building out their network, and they didn't make a dollar of profit in Europe until 2000. So, so essentially, it took them 20 years of investing and spending billions to build up the footprint to get where they are now, which is a highly profitable, dense European operation. And, and that's also why FedEx didn't do that, because their shareholders would not have been able to put up with 20 years of, right. of funding losses. They ended up buying TNT, which is a whole other story that, that we, we can right. talk about later. But so I thought it was always interesting that DHL came to the U.S. market and then left. And I think they left at what, about 10, 10 12 years ago? Yeah, and so I they, thinking they, they, they left at the wrong time. <laughs> well, they left at the right time for them. And I think it was a good decision on DHL's part. You know, hindsight, yeah, but so then it was that, 2020. But didn't, but, didn't we explode in parcel movement since then? Yeah, but what you don't see is that they would have lost billions and billions of dollars over the last 10 years that. With, with no idea that this explosion was going to happen over the past few years. And they so, didn't know about e-commerce then? <laughs> well, they did know about e-commerce, but they didn't really... But it was, yeah, yeah, it was small. Yeah, they, they were losing over a billion dollars a year in the U.S. market with no end in sight and poor service. It really was the integration of the Wilmington and Cincy hub in 2005 that dropped DHL down the service. So they were in kind of a downward spiral for a few years. So I'll stop saying that. I keep saying the DHL left early, but to your point, if they're losing a billion dollars a year, it's time to leave. <laughs> Even big old DHL. So anyway, let's get back to LTL. So yep. we talked a little bit about the background. And so I want to talk a little bit about now, the future. So give us some idea what we should be expecting here in the future. So it's an exciting time in the LTL industry for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that I'll talk about modal share. Since deregulation in 1980, when supply chains were changing and, and supply chains got a little bit more efficient, LTL was really a shared donor. 
because you had them being attacked on both sides. On the heavier shipments, truckload carriers were able to figure out how to price volume and do multi-stop runs that took the heavier weighted, you know, say five to 15,000 pound LTL shipments and have them go in the truckload market. And then on the lower side, UPS and FedEx rolled out a hundred weight product that goes in the 90s, but really took off maybe post 2000, where they targeted all of the, you know, say, 150 pound or, or less shipments that used to be what we call filler freight in the LTL industry. Because when you're loading a trailer, you stack these big pallets, there's always space one right. way or the other. And if you have just a package, remember, go back to this, the box example with Amazon, the parcel side, you could stuff a lot of those to max out in your cube with no incremental cost, really. And uh, FedEx and UPS got smart and just sucked all of that out of the LTL industry over a period of time. So LTL is really just left with you know palletized, large, bulky freight. And in the past 12 months, with the parcel networks getting flooded, you know, everything that's gone on with e-commerce and the demand there. And so they've been, because they prefer a five-pound box. They make more money on a five-pound box than on a 150-pound you know, right. shipment. And so the more of those they can get in this market, given that their networks are kind of full, they're kicking out the stuff that is harder to handle and they don't have a lot of space for. And that's the heavier parcel right. side or, or the lighter weight LTL side. So that's going back to LTL. And then on the truckload piece, truckload is a highly fragmented market. And so often there's excess capacity in truckload. Well, not right now, not given the current right. and, and also the current driver supply issues, which is a whole other call. And so, you know, heavier shipments are coming back into LTL too. So, so LTL is for years was getting squeezed on both sides and now they're actually pushing out and grabbing share. They're getting some room. Yeah. <laughs> they're, get, they're getting some room. They're getting some room, which is, which is a good thing. So when you say the modal mix, so that basically it's more attractive to ship stuff LTL than it's been in the, in any recent times. So that's a good thing for the less than the truckload biz. So yes. what's another trend we should be looking for? A trend that we should be looking for is on the pricing side. And I'm not sure how this evolves because we've been talking about it for a number of years, but LTL pricing is very outdated and archaic. They've got this national free classification system that you know, classifies shipments on a class 50 to 500 basis on you know, density, stowability, damageability, all that kind of stuff. And when you think about transportation, you think about LTL networks, parcel networks, et cetera, they're selling space. And so with technology the way it is and dimensioners being rolled out, you've got the capability to really capture that accurately from a shipper. And so you know right. how much space it's going to take up on the trailer right. and, and organize your costing and pricing according to that. But you, know, you still have these outdated tariffs. Like There's some shippers that are still going off, say, a 1997 consolidated freight wave tariffs or, you know, that right. people are going to have to you know, price off of. And, and so for me, it's the smarter LTL carriers are already taking advantage of the new technology around dimensions to better cost their freight. And at some point, it would be easier. I think it would be beneficial for both the shippers and the carriers to have more transparency and to be able to cost and price right. the same way. But given the systems and everything else now, it just hasn't happened yet. So yeah. essentially, they're costing in English and pricing in German. I mean, it would right. be nice if they <laughs> right. spoke the same language. When I was selling less than truckload, I always felt like the one thing that I didn't like about, you no, know, and again, I was non-asset-based. 3PL. And one of the things I did not like is, first up, you go see somebody and they say, oh, we just classify this 65. You know, I was like, well, that was probably more like 85 or 105, but I I don't know. Well, then as soon as you get that business, we'd say, well, no, that's actually 85 and you've been mislabeling it, but it wasn't getting caught. So they're like, I'm not mislabeling it, right? So I'm going to continue. But I also don't like the idea that anytime I quote you one price and invoice you another and then ex try and explain it away, it's always... <laughs> 
it's an upsetting. And, you know, I said it when we were prepping, complexity is the enemy of quality. And this is a complex process. And I'm not, there's no one to blame. And it seems like it's incrementally changing for the better. But man, I can't wait till it's the way it should be, whatever that looks like. <laughs> yeah, simple is not always easy, but simple is generally better. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things that we're focused on at Roadrunner right now is removing complexity, getting focused, trying to keep things as simple as possible so that we can execute well. And that translates through all different parts of the organization. Right. So one other thing we talked about is e-commerce. So talk about that impact on less than truckload. Yeah, so what e-commerce does is it requires faster movement of goods. Amazon, people always talk about the e-commerce effect or the Amazon effect interchangeably. Right. And what Amazon has done is really push the envelope on transit times. It used to be you order something online, it'll arrive in 10 to 14 days, and then it became 46 days, and then it became two days, and now it's same day, within an hour, whatever it might be. So they're really speeding up supply chains. And To have faster supply chains, you have to change how things move. And if you think about the old model called a brick-and-mortar distribution center to the store model, well, truckload is the most efficient way of transportation if you have the volume. And so a lot of times you would have inventory at the store level, and then as people are buying things, you put an order to the D.C. for replenishment. And then, say, once a week, they send a whole truckload of goods to replenish everything that was out of stock. Now at e-commerce, if you're not in a brick-and-mortar footprint and you're, instead of going from the DC to the store where your final inventory is, if, if the you know, fulfillment center, which is a you know, higher tech warehouse where everything's in each's instead of pallets, you can't be out of stock for a week. You can't wait for a weekly truckload to get in. And so if you sell out of whether it's books, sweaters, electronics or something, you've got to you know, rapidly replenish that. So if somebody else comes on right. and orders it the next day that you can ship it out, you can meet your service commitment. So what that does, is that involves more frequent replenishment in smaller order sizes, which leads itself to being beneficial for LTL and parcel versus truckload. Oh, nice. And, you know, and it's interesting also, those fulfillment centers are going to get smaller. I think the, the trend is that we're going to see more fulfillment centers. They're not going to be the behemoths. They're going to be close to population centers so they can support that same day next day. To get same day next day, the inventory has to be relatively close to me. It can't. Or you, you know, have to use Detroit, air freight. It can't come from Chicago. Yeah, or you have to <laughs> yeah, use yeah, air yeah, freight. And, well, that's why Amazon's <laughs> building its air network. Yeah, they've got over 50 planes flying now and they're on their way to 100 plus. And a lot of that's just for inventory repositioning. It's just a matter of time before Amazon sends it to me before I knew I wanted it. (laughs) I'm sure it's in the works, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one other thing we talked about is labor, drivers and docks. So talk about that. So on the LTL side, truck drivers have generally been paid more than in truckload uh, just because it's had a unionized influence over the years. So there was a labor contract that stipulated rate increases and even the non-union carriers had to follow along to stay competitive in the marketplace. So every year, LTL drivers, LTL dock workers, everybody got a pay raise. Whereas in truckload, because it's a highly fragmented market, you would have years where drivers didn't get paid any more money until there was a shortage. And then they had to take a step up and pay and then they kind of stayed at this. Forever. So it's been more of a stair-step function up on the truckload side. And so when we talk about driver shortages, which we've been talking about off and on ever since I've been in the business, and it's something that's just a function of the cycle, I think. But there's also some longer-term demographic tailwinds. And again, we get a whole other call on drivers, so I'll try to keep that side short. But in today's landscape, it's very interesting that LTL, for the first time I've heard, is having serious challenges, both on the dock worker and driver side. 
getting enough people to handle the freight that's coming their way. And so how that evolves in terms of pricing and capacity expansion is one issue. And the other issue is with the new administration, there's some more labor-friendly or union-friendly, not labor-friendly, things that are being proposed, such as the PRO Act, which is of concern to a lot of the LTL carriers that have done a nice job running a business, treating their employees well as a non-union entity. And there's this attitude that union is better than non-union and some of the legislation could make it easier to unionize and force unionization of people that don't even want a union. So that's probably top of mind uh, of many LTL carriers at the moment. And that's going to be a trend to watch over the next couple of years as to how that plays out. Right. And, you know, one of the things other and it's not really related to unions or anything, but it's also I think we're really as an industry trying harder to make the driver's life a little easier. One of the things I think is we've really disrespected drivers for a long time with, hey, you just drove eight hours sitting in my parking lot for two more while I figure out how to unload you. That kind of stuff just has to end. And I know that's a little less prevalent on the less than truckload side, but it's still there. It's, still, it's just an incredibly hard job. And I remember going through USF Holland's terminal and they were talking about wanting to find drivers. And they said, it's challenging because you have to have to have a really good driving record. You can't smoke weed. Even if it's legal where you live, you still can't have that in your system. And you know, yeah, there's other opportunities. So. Yeah, and we're very focused on that at Roadrunner as well. You know, on my internal emails and my auto signature, I've got a quote that says, have you hugged your IC today? Because we have a lot of independent contractors right. uh, in our in our line haul model. And, Good for you. And the message to everybody in the organization is that they are very important. They're running this network. They're serving our customers. They're providing on-time service. And given the current state of the market, they're a hot commodity. And so we want to make sure that everybody from the dock worker to the terminal manager to sales to dispatch, you know, is treating those guys and girls with the respect that they deserve. And, you know, they're an important part of the company. Right. So, Dave, I know I'm going to lose you in six minutes, so I'll be quick. So you talked a little bit about the history. I appreciate that. And then you talked about some changes that are happening. We're going to see the pricing model change. We're going to see the modal mix be more favorable to less than truckload. We're going to grab up some business from truckload and hopefully small parcel. And the e-commerce, that's going to change everything the way we're, you know, making that move to e-commerce over retail or the probably merging of both. And then last but not least, we talked about the labor. So give us some final thoughts and then tell us a little bit what's going on over at Roadrunner, who you guys serve and how we can reach out. Sure. So other final thoughts on the LTL industry is that it's going to remain, I would say, a competitive market. It's not a winner-take-all ballgame. I remember back in 2000. In the early 2000s, so after FedEx got into LTL and then UPS got into LTL, a lot of investors at the time were asking if that spelled doom for all the other LTL carriers because similar to Parcel, they were just going to own the whole LTL industry. And and really, it doesn't work like that given the infrastructure and and the footprints and and everything else in, in the market. So there is a place longer term for very solid regional LTL carriers in each region. There's a place for solid competitors in interregional and in longer haul markets, but it's ultimately going to come down to service and, and costs and who runs an efficient network as to who's going to make it through those upcoming cycles and, and the ups and downs. So I think that the demand is pretty strong. The tailwinds are strong from, you know, as we mentioned, the modal mix and you know, some modal share gains coming our way in the LTL industry. And you know, that's why I'm excited to, to be at Roadrunner. As for Roadrunner specifically, you can look us up on the web at shiproadrunnerfreight.com. I'll put the links in the show notes. Yeah, I'm just at david.ross at rrts.com. So I'm very easy to reach. I'll put your LinkedIn on there too. <laughs> that way as well. And so we've got a lot of good things going on. You know, it's a, it's a tough market. We're trying to help our customers the best we can. You know, we work with direct shippers. We work with 3PLs. You know, if you've got 
freight to move, LTL, major market to major market, we are there for the shipper right now and, and we're focused on providing good, reliable, damage-free, on-time service. Excellent, excellent. So who's your sweet spot? There is really no sweet spot. I mean, I would say the sweet spot is just if you've got freight, say, from you know 100 pounds to 10,000 pounds in those major lanes, that's our sweet right. spot. So the sweet spot isn't so much an industry as best where you're shipping from and to. Correct. We serve all industries. You know, we do retail, we do manufacturing. So the industry is not as important as the lanes for us. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dave, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in there, link to the company website and any other things your marketing people give me, I will put in the links. And thank you so much. I really do appreciate getting that history. Again, I don't think too many people have lived that history like you have. And you're still relatively young, so you got more to go. Yeah, well, Joe, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the interest. I love talking about the industry and you've certainly got a good knowledge base and it was a pleasure. So happy to come back anytime. Thank you so much. I would love that too. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 